Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. This is another question and answer. The reason that I've decided to do another question and answer session so soon after the last one was because the questions and the topics just keep flowing. We've had so many come in this past spring And I think it's because there have been just, there's been just a lot of movement. Things have changed really rapidly uh, since um, we've been getting our vaccines. The pandemic is, I think, you know, coming to, I don't know if you want to call it a close. I don't think we can call it a close, but things are changing. Um, the dynamic is changing. We've just gotten uh, our uh, an update from the CDC. And so, you know, we're getting, I think, daily information now about how to stay safe. Um, mask wearing is now optional if you are vaccinated and um, we're just getting new information all the time about staying safe. At least in the US, our infection rate is way down, our um, hospitalizations are way down, our mortality rate is way down, all great news. With the warm weather, at least in the Northeast um, and the Northwest, all across the US, we can now be outside, which is good news for folks who you know, can then safely distance. Um, the kids are back at school. Many people are back at work. We're talking about going back to work in big companies, in the big cities. Think there's definitely movement. So having said that, that doesn't mean that everything is back to normal, I think things are flexible still. I think we've shifted. Dynamics have shifted. There's been huge adjustment. Um, And with that has come just a lot of chatter. A lot of issues have been brought up, a lot of questions. So I have been rapidly trying to grab all of the questions that have come to me through the law firm, through uh, Special Needs Family Services, through uh, our Twitter feed, through LinkedIn, through uh, the multiple Facebook pages, through our um, group that we have, our circle of care, and just trying to gather them all. And there is no way that I'm going to get to everything. 
But what I've been trying to do is group them into pieces where folks are, um, you know, kind of categorizing things um, of concern for everybody. And so I've got a couple of areas of concern where things have come up and I wanted to chat with you about them today. So I'm going to talk about them kind of um, in order of importance. And the first thing that's come up has been an interesting article that uh, I had a, a couple of questions or a couple of issues that got raised around foster care payments and foster care social security issues. So if you have someone who is entitled to social security payments and they are in the foster care system and they're under the age of 18, then what happens to their payments? Who's entitled to be their representative payee and who is entitled to spend those payments for them? And what happens to those payments when they turn 18? So this is a very confusing question because it does depend somewhat on the state and it depends on the kind of payments. So just a little refresher, there are two kinds of social security payments that a child under the age of 18 could be entitled to, uh, an SSI payment or an SSDI payment. Now, those payments are going to be based on whether the child is a dependent of someone who is, um, you know, who they're, they're going to be, first of all, a child who has a disability. So the child it has got to qualify as someone with a disability or a dependent of someone um, who has um, died and and or retired and received payments. So there are a number of categories where a child under the age of 18 may be receiving a social security payment. So if the child is disabled, they may be able to receive a payment if the child does not have a disability, then um, they may be able to receive a dependent payment. So um, they may not need to have a disability at all in order to receive a dependent payment. And in most of the foster care situation, that is what we're talking about with under age 18 children. So, um, Let's mostly focus on the under age 18 dependent payments. So in many of these situations, we're talking about survivor benefits. So I'm gonna stay focused on those survivor benefits. Where children enter into the foster system, that means that their parents are unable to care for them. So either their parents are deceased or they are incapacitated in some way or another. And 
what happens sometimes is they may already be receiving benefits or they may be entitled to social security benefits, but they, their families don't know it. When children enter into the foster system, they are not always placed with family members. Uh, they are sometimes placed into uh, non-family foster placement. So either a, um, a, a non-family foster home or a group home or some other setting like that. So in many states, the federal government is now seeking out um, private providers to assist them in hunting down whether children in their care are entitled to foster payments. And when those foster payments, uh, when that eligibility is found, then the federal government is stepping in as that representative payee and applying for benefits. And uh, NPR did a story on this last month in April that was eye-opening. And they found that as many as 10% of children in the foster care system are either receiving or are entitled to social security payments because their parents have died or because they have a physical or mental disability that would entitle them to these payments. So um, the payments vary because they are either entitled to SSI payments, which are going to be around that $700 plus a month payment, or they're going to be entitled to benefits under their parental work record, which could be $1,000 or more. Some payments, you know, could be $1,500, $1,600, $1,700 a month, depending on what parents have earned. So um, at least 10 state foster care agencies hire these for-profit companies to obtain millions of dollars in social security benefits intended for the children. But the state agencies um, actually keep the money and they use them, use the money for care for the children, so to speak. The state foster care agencies collected, NPR found, more than $165 million from these children in 2018 alone. That was, to me, just, again, um, an eye-opening number. And uh, Social Security themselves thought that that was that number was too low and the number was much likely higher than that. So this is obviously a complicated issue and you might say, well, if the state is responsible for taking care of these children when parents don't, why wouldn't the state then be entitled to the funds to do so if there are funds there to do so? Well, I want to discuss, you know, why that's a bad idea. Because when children are in foster care, 
especially if they have special needs or a disability in any way, that money would be available to pay for extra things that the foster care system doesn't pay for and could make a huge difference. When a child ages out of the foster care system at age 18, they get nothing to get them started. I don't want to poop all over the foster care system because there are many people who work hard, including myself and my husband, who for a few years were foster parents and many, many good people out there who provide excellent care to children in the foster care system. But the system is flawed and it's not a perfect system and it cannot replace loving parents and loving families. It just, it's never going to be the same. There are so many children who come through with trauma and it can't meet that burden. An extra fund that comes in, you know, the form of a an income every month to provide supports, extra supports, extra therapy. When I think about one of the children, one of the children that I had, particularly, had I had a few extra hundred dollars a month, and and we provided out of pocket to the tune of probably you know fifteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars a month for the children that we had in our home every month just because we needed to. Um, And that was a personal choice that we made. But if we had had funds for that child alone to be able to do therapy and to do, you know, personal things for that child, or even to just start a savings account, it would have made a difference. And I'm sure that that's true for many, many children, especially teenagers, as they get ready, ready to age out, they need that something to get started with. They need that something for their first car, their first apartment. They need a leg up uh, because they do often leave some of them with no family and no support. And they, they need something to get going in life. And, you know, this money is, is theirs. It's, it's meant for them. So one of the um, other fundamental things that has come up when you think about these payments is who gets to be that representative payee and why does the government get to do it? Um, why isn't it best done by a family member? The government, uh, as it's come up in this article, has given no notice that they've taken these benefits away in many instances. They've gone out, they've applied for the benefits, they've told no one that the, that the child was eligible for the benefits. And there's just a lot wrong with that issue. So I encourage you to go ahead and read the NPR article. It was fascinating. I um, actually have gotten multiple questions about social security and foster care payments, uh, foster care, children in foster care and social security payments. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over this mouthful. 
Um, and it was an area of law that I hadn't really encountered in that uh, I really wasn't sure that there was anything different about it, but apparently there is. So I found this to be very enlightening and um, kind of frightening, actually. So I thought that I would spend some time talking about this on the podcast, and I would love to know your thoughts about um, what you think the um, impact of this kind of taking by the government is. And, you know, it generally really impacts the American underclass more than anything. Um, And I really would love to know your thoughts about this. So feel free to go ahead and um, read the article and I would love to know your comments. So thank you for in advance for letting me know your thoughts about that. Okay, next, um, I got a question about, actually, I've gotten multiple questions about putting your house in a special needs trust. And of course, that comes up pretty much constantly. Why does it come up all the time? It comes up all the time because figuring out where your sibling or your kid or your loved one in general is going to live when you are not able to care for them is just the number one question every single time. And with that, there was a um, a question or an issue that came up pretty often the last couple of months that is sort of a different take on that topic. And that is fractional ownership in the home. When you have maybe only two big assets to leave in your planning, and that's your home and your retirement account, it can be hard to split them up when you have multiple beneficiaries of your estate. Say you have three kids or you have, you know, if it's your sibling and you're living in the family home, and you have your own family, but you also have your sibling that you wanna make sure that you take care of and you wanna leave you know, half a house or a third of a house. It can be hard to think about how do I make sure that my sibling gets to stay in this home or gets you know, part of the value of this home without disinheriting the other beneficiaries of my estate. So can I leave a half a house? Can I leave a third of a house? And the answer is yes. Yes, I can. I can either when I die in my will or while I'm alive and I'm planning, I can pre-fund in my estate plan a half a house or a third of a house. And clearly when you're in a when you're in an area like in the northeast or in Um, in the coastal region or any large metropolitan area where the value of real estate is a big piece of what you own, a big part of the asset value of your estate, 
it's going to be the the largest part or one of the larger parts of what you have to leave to your beneficiaries. So let's say that your your home that you live in is, you know, worth 500,000 and your retirement account is worth 500,000 and you've got a million dollars to leave. You don't actually feel any of that asset value because you're you're not going to take your you're not going to sell your house, you're living in it, and you're trying hard not to run down your retirement plan, your retirement plan, you're still saving. So you don't feel like a millionaire, but it's there. And you're saving for the future. Someday the future is going to be here. And you know, you might, you might get to live off of that. I hope you do. Um, but you might also end up leaving that for your future beneficiaries and your sibling or your children will, you know, be a part of that. So yes, you can leave a fractional share of real estate to a special needs trust, either funding it now or in the future through your will or in your estate plan in general. But should you, should you do that? And the answer is probably Probably not. That's that's a challenging way to parse out your estate plan because having your trustee be a fractional owner of a share of a home will be difficult for the other owners. Let's say that you have three children and one of your children ends up being the trustee of the special needs trust that owns one third share and your two other your two children also own one third so now you have one child who is a trustee and is voting on one third of the shares that child also owns a third so they're controlling two thirds and then you have one child who owns one third share so the child who is controlling two thirds of the shares of the house really gets to decide what happens with the house. And that's unfair to both the child who is the special needs child, um, who's the beneficiary of the trust, and also the child who is a one third owner. That child who is the trustee and the one-third owner really is in charge of everything. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's what you've decided and what will work in your family. But if you have one child who needs the value of that house and really wants the house sold, and the other children don't and want to hold on to the house, and if your intent is for your disabled child to stay in that home, then your other two children are going to be locked into waiting for the value of that home until your disabled child no longer lives there. So there's a lot of considerations to this fractional share issue. If your plan is to force a sale of that home so that everybody gets their share of the value of the home, then that's okay, but you have to make that intent known. And that can be a really difficult thing as well. Um, you can write that in to your plan 
but you don't know what the situation and the circumstances are going to be when it's time for the plan to be enacted. So that's another issue that's going to come up as well. So home ownership in and of itself in a special needs trust is fraught with issues, but fractional home ownership is 10 times more complicated. I think this is an area where you really wanna dig in and have some serious talks with your estate planner and make sure that you understand all of the ramifications of what a fractional share means. It may be the only option for you if all you've got is your home and you know maybe some other smaller assets and you've got three or four beneficiaries that you need to spread this out over. I, I suggest that you may want to think about life insurance as a way to create an estate where you don't have one. There, again, with a good planner and maybe a good financial advisor, you may be able to find a way to share, to have four beneficiaries share in an estate um, that won't require you to consider a fractional share of real estate. Okay, last topic, um, very interesting topic, and that is a lot of questions. The most questions have come up um, about stimulus payments and how they are impacting Social Security and Medicaid. And uh, stimulus payments, also referred to as economic impact payments, have been the subject of so much confusion and misinformation. And, you know, the CARES Act has been hard to, I think, wade through and understand and really um you know, figure out, and there's been waves and waves of information coming out, and it really depends on who you talk to. If you're talking to your accountant, or you're talking to your estate planner, or you're talking to um, your neighbor, uh, you, you know, are definitely probably getting lots of different information. So, um, in brief, um, 26 USC section 6409 applies to the SSI program and um, the Medicaid program. So I'm going to talk about both of these. So um, the commissioner of SSA, the Social Security Administration program, released a statement confirming that the SSA will not consider economic impact payments as income for SSI recipients, and that these payments are excluded from resources for 12 months. So that should be fairly straightforward for you. The SSA's FAQs confirm that these economic impact payments is not Social Security or SSI benefit. So I want to kind of leave that there. That's not a um, really difficult um, thing to wade through. With Medicaid, unfortunately, there are so many different Medicaid programs. And I know that 
different state Medicaid offices have different approaches and are some are easier to deal with than others. In our state in Massachusetts, we have more challenging Medicaid offices to talk to when it comes to um, being challenged with so many things. And so I know in talking to some of our um, friends across other states, they find friendlier folks in their local Medicaid offices. So depending on where you are, you may or may not have as many challenges. But um, specifically, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, have released two primary sets of um, FAQs regarding COVID-19. And um, they've gone through a series of updates and um, that um, they've said a couple of important things. One, that during the 12-month penalty, um, penalty-free period, that they can actually give away their EIP. So what? why is that important? Because normally you cannot transfer any assets or income without incurring a penalty. So if you are worried about still having this money left in your account and not being able to spend it down, you can actually give this money away. It's the first time that we've ever seen something like, like this um, occur. So again, within this 12-month period where you can hold on to this stimulus payment or this EIP, economic impact payment, and not have it impact your your $2,000 asset limit, you can actually give it away to, in order to get under your $2,000 um, income, your resource limit, or, um, or and stay under your resource limit. So hopefully that makes sense to you. So your transfer rules will not apply. And you, for the 12 month period, it will not be a countable asset for you. And after that 12 months exemption period is up, and if you are still holding on to it, it will be countable to you. So you do need to think about what you're gonna do during that 12 month period in order to make sure that when the end of that 12 months is up, you don't still have those economic impact payments. Now, it is going to be confusing because they rolled out these economic impact payments at different times. So we've got a 12 month clock on each payment. So that is you know, a little bit of a nightmare for all of us trying to keep track of these payments both from Medicaid and Social Security um, applicability alike. So that is a pain in the neck. Um, but I wanted to kind of run that down for you because both Social Security and Medicaid have these transfer penalty rules and they have these resource and income rules. So just in general, they do not count as income to you they do not count as a, an asset or resource over the $2,000 asset limit for you. And you can give them away. So hopefully that is clear uh, about that. One other thing that came up 
that was also really interesting was, can you keep your economic impact payment if you received it after someone dies? And the answer essentially was yes, depending on the date of death. So um, if you um, passed away on or after January 1st, 2020, and you received the first or second economic impact payment, then you are still eligible to keep it. If you died after January 1st, 2021, and you received the third economic impact payment, you are eligible to keep that one. So it's important that you check the regulations because these, um, you know, these rules are really complicated when it comes down to some of these really detailed uh, different nuances. And we don't want people panicking and thinking that they have to return payments or, you know, are they going to be the, um, you know, are they going to belong to the estate or, you know, who are they going to belong to? So if you did have someone pass away like we did, and that came up actually more than once, unfortunately, and we had to go and look up the rules ourselves, just go ahead and ask your accountant or go ahead and ask your planner to assist you with one, with something like that so that you are clear about what your responsibility is. And we are so sorry if you are in that situation. I know that these last you know, 14, 15 months have been incredibly stressful for everybody. Hopefully this podcast has helped a little bit. And I am sorry that I can't get to everybody's questions. But again, you know, I find that the most sophisticated questions that come in are so fascinating for me. Some of them I have never encountered. I love looking them up. I've had a lot of fun just talking to all of you and digging into some of the more challenging issues and um, fascinating life questions that have come up. I have enjoyed just so much doing this podcast and meeting all of you in the circle of care. So keep them coming. I would love to know what you thought of this podcast and please just, you know, join me in the circle of care every Wednesday at six o'clock Eastern time. If you would like to join us, just go to specialneedscompanies.com and um, click on the links there to join us in our circle of care or you can go to Facebook and meet us there. So um, if there is anything else that you would like to get addressed in this podcast, if you've got a topic that we haven't done yet, if you know of anybody that you would like to see us interview, if you would like to be interviewed yourself, we would love to hear from you. 
please feel free to reach out. Thank you so much. And we'll be seeing you. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.